This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rainer Ockenrein. The Awful German Language by Mark Twain. Part 2. Now observe the adjective. Here was a case where simplicity would have been an advantage. Therefore, for no other reason, the inventor of this language complicated it all he could. When we wish to speak of our good friend or friends in our enlightened tongue, we stick to the one form and have no trouble or hard feeling about it. But with the German tongue it is different. When a German gets its hand on an adjective, he declines it, and keeps on declining it, until the common sense is all declined out of it. It is as bad as Latin. He says, for instance, in singular, nominative, mein guter Freund, my good friend, genitive, meines guten Freundes, of my good friend, dative, meinem guten Freund, to my good friend, accusative, meinen guten Freund, my good friend, in plural, nominative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends, genitive, meiner guten Freunde, of my good friends, dative, meinen guten Freunden, to my good friends, accusative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends. Now let the candidate for the asylum try to memorize those variations and see how soon he will be elected. One might better go without friends in Germany than take all this trouble about them. I have shown what bother it is to decline a good male friend. Well, this is only a third of the work, for there is a variety of new distortions of the adjective to be learned when the object is feminine, and still another when the object is neuter. Now, there are more adjectives in this language than there are black cats in Switzerland, and they must all be as elaborately declined as the examples above suggested. Difficult? Troublesome? These words cannot describe it. I heard a Californian student in Heidelberg say, in one of his calmest moods, that he would rather decline two drinks than one German adjective. The inventor of the language seems to have taken pleasure in complicating it in every way he could think of. For instance, if one is casually referring to a house in German house, or a horse in German Pferd, or a dog in German Hund. He spells these words as I have indicated. But if he is referring to them in the dative case, he sticks on a foolish and unnecessary E and spells them Hause, Pferde, Hunde. So, as an added E often signifies the plural, as the S does with us, the new student is likely to go on for a month making twins out of a dative dog before he discovers his mistake. And, on the other hand, 
many a new student who could ill afford loss has bought and paid for two dogs and only got one of them because he ignorantly bought that dog in the dative singular when he really supposed he was talking plural which left the law on the seller's side of course by the strict rules of grammar and therefore a suit for recovery could not lie in german all the nouns begin with a capital letter now that is a good idea and a good idea in this language is necessarily conspicuous from its lonesomeness i consider this capitalizing of nouns a good idea because by reason of it you are almost always able to tell a noun the minute you see it you fall into error occasionally because you mistake the name of a person for the name of a thing and waste a good deal of time trying to dig a meaning out of it german names almost always do mean something and this helps to deceive the student i translated a passage one day which said that the infuriated tigress broke loose and utterly ate up the unfortunate fir forest in german tannenwald when i was girding up my loins to doubt this i found out that tannenwald in this instance was a man's name every noun has a gender and there's no sense or system in the distribution so the gender of each must be learned separately and by heart there is no other way to do this one has to have a memory like a memorandum book in german a young lady has no sex while a turnip has think what overbroad reference that shows for the turnip and what callous disrespect for the girl see how it looks in print i translate this from a conversation in one of the best of the german sunday school books gretchen wilhelm where's the turnip wilhelm she has gone to the kitchen gretchen where's the accomplished and beautiful english maiden wilhelm it has gone to the opera to continue with the german genders a tree is male its buds are female its leaves are neuter horses are sexless dogs are male cats are female tomcats included of course a person's mouth neck bosom elbows fingers nails feet and body are of the male sex and his head is male or neuter according to the word selected to signify it and not according to the sex of the individual who wears it for in germany all the women wear either male heads or sexless ones a person's nose lips shoulders breast hands and toes are of the female sex and his hair ears eyes chin legs knees heart and conscience haven't any sex at all the inventor of the language probably got what he knew about a conscience from hearsay now by the above dissection the reader will see that in germany a man may think he's a man but when he comes to look into the matter closely he is bound to have his doubts 
he finds that in sober truth he is a most ridiculous mixture. And if he ends by trying to comfort himself with the thought that he can at least depend on a third of this mess as being manly and masculine, the humiliating second thought will quickly remind him that, in this respect, he is no better off than any woman or cow in the land. In the German, it is true that by some oversight of the inventor of the language, a woman is female, but a wife, in German, weib, is not, which is unfortunate. A wife, here, has no sex. She is neuter. So, according to the grammar, a fish is he, his scales are she, but a fishwife is neither. To describe a wife as sexless may be called under-description. That is bad enough, but over-description is surely worse. A German speaks of an Englishman as the Engländer. To change the sex, he adds in, and that stands for Englishwoman, Engländerin. That seems descriptive enough, but it is still not exact enough for a German. So he precedes the word with that article which indicates that the creature to follow is feminine, and writes it down thus, die Engländerin, which means the she-Englishwoman. I consider that that person is over-described. Well, after the student has learned the sex of a great number of nouns, he is still in a difficulty because he finds it impossible to persuade his tongue to refer to things as he and she and him and her, which it has been always accustomed to refer to it as it. When he even frames a German sentence in his mind, with the hims and hers in the right places, and then works up his courage to the utterance point, it is no use. The moment he begins to speak, his tongue flies the track and all those laborat males and females come out as its. And even when he is reading German to himself, he always calls those things it. Whereas he ought to read in this way. Tale of the fishwife and its sad fate. It is a bleak day. Hear the rain, how he pours, and the hail how he rattles, and see the snow, how he drifts along, and, oh, the mud, how deep he is. Ah, the poor fishwife, it is stuck fast in the mire. It has dropped its basket of fishes, and its hand have been cut by the scales as it seized some of the falling creatures. And one scale has even got into its eye, and it cannot get her out. It opens its mouth to cry for help, but if any sound comes out of him, alas, he is drowned by the raging of the storm. And now a tomcat has got one of the fishes, and she will surely escape with him. No, she bites off a fin, she holds her in her mouth. Will she swallow her? No. The fishwife's brave mother dog deserts his puppies and rescues the fin, which he eats 
himself as his reward. Oh, horror! The lightning has struck the fish basket. He sets him on fire. See the flame, how she licks the doomed utensil with her red and angry tongue. How she attacks the helpless fishwife's food. She burns him up, all but the big toe, and even she is partly consumed. And still she spreads, still she waves her fiery tongues. She attacks the fishwife's leg and destroys it. She attacks its hand and destroys her. She attacks its poor worn garment and destroys her also. She attacks its body and consumes him. She wrathes herself about its heart and it is consumed. Next about its breast, and in a moment she is a cinder. Now she reaches its neck. He goes, now its chin. It goes, now its nose. She goes. In another moment, except help come, the fishwife will be no more. Time presses. Is there none to succor and save? Yes, joy, joy, with flying feet, the she-Englishwoman comes. But alas, the generous she-female is too late. Where now is the fated fishwife? It has ceased from its sufferings. It has gone to her better land. All that is left for it, for its loved ones, to lament over, is this poor smoldering ash-heap. Ah, woeful, woeful ash-heap. Let us take him up tenderly, reverently, upon the lowly shovel, and bear him to his long rest, with a prayer that, when he arises again, it will be a ream where he will have one good, square, reasonable sex, and have it all to himself, instead of having a mangly lot of assorted sexes scattered all over him in spots. There, now, the reader can see for himself that this pronoun business is a very awkward thing for the unaccustomed tongue. I suppose that in all languages the similarities of look and sound between words which have no similarity in meaning are a fruitful source of perplexity to the foreigner. It is so in our tongue, and it is notably the case in the German. Now there is a troublesome word, vermehrt. To me it has so close a resemblance, either real or fancied, to three or four other words, that I never know whether it means despised, painted, suspected, or married, until I look in the dictionary, and then I find it means the latter. There are lots of such words, and they are a great torment. To increase the difficulty, there are words which seem to resemble each other, and yet do not, but they make just as much trouble as if they did. For instance, there is the word vermieden, which means to let, to lease, to hire, and the word verheiraten, another way of saying to marry. I heard of an Englishman who knocked at a man's door in Heidelberg and proposed in the best German he could command to verheiraten that house. 
Then there are some words which mean one thing when you emphasize the first syllable, but mean something very different if you throw the emphasis on the last syllable. For instance, there's a word which means a runaway, or the act of glancing through a book, according to the placing of the emphasis, and another word which signifies to associate with a man or to avoid him according to where you put the emphasis and you can generally depend on putting it in the wrong place and getting into trouble there are some exceedingly useful words in this language schlag for example and zug there are three quarters of a column of schlags in the dictionary and a column and a half of zugs the word schlag means blow, stroke, dash, hit, shock, clap, slap, time, bar, coin, stamp, kind, sword, manner, way, apoplexy, wood cutting, enclosure, field, forest cleaning. This is its simple and exact meaning. That is to say, its restricted, its fettered meaning. But there are ways by which you can set it free so that it can soar away as on the wings of the morning and never be at rest. You can hang any word you please to its tail and make it mean anything you want to. You can begin with Schlagader, which means artery, and you can hang on the whole dictionary, word by word, clear through the alphabet to Schlagwasser, which means bilge water and including Schlagmutter, which means mother-in-law. Just the same with Zug. Strictly speaking, Zug means pull, tuck, draw, procession, march, progress, flight, direction, expedition, train, caravan, passage, stroke, touch, line, flourish, trait of character, feature, lineament, chess move, organ stop, team, with, bias, draw, propensity, inhalation, disposition. But the thing which it does not mean, when all its legitimate penance have been hung on, has not been discovered yet. One cannot overestimate the usefulness of Schlag and Zug, armed with just these two, and the word also, what cannot the foreigner on German soil accomplish? The German word also is the equivalent of the English phrase you know and does not mean anything at all in talk, for it sometimes does in print. Every time a German opens his mouth, an also falls out, and every time he shuts it, he bites one in two that was trying to get out. Now, the foreigner, equipped with these three noble words, is master of the situation. Let him talk right along, fearlessly. Let him pour his indifferent German forth, and when he lacks a word, let him have a schlag into the vacuum. All the chances are that it fits like a plug. But if it doesn't, let him promptly heave a zug after it. The two together can hardly fail to bung the hole. 
but if, by miracle, they should fail, let him simply say, also, and this will give him a moment's chance to think of the needful word. In Germany, when you load your conversational gun, it is always best to throw in a schlag or two and a zug or two, because it doesn't make any difference how much the rest of the charge may scatter. You are bound to back something with them. Then you blandly say, also, and load up again. Nothing gives such an air of grace and elegance and unconstraint to a German or an English conversation as to scatter it full of also or you knows. End of part two.